From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. We talk a lot on this podcast about the current state of e-commerce product photography, in particular, the studio process, where we control everything. All or most variables are accounted for, and we have all of the tools that we may need to get the job done. Sometimes, though, we have to take the show on the road. While most of us creative production professionals are no stranger to the location shoot, taking a dialed-in studio process on the road is a little bit different. My guest, Don Reed of Saks Fifth Avenue, and I each have stories of situations where we needed to take the show on the road, take our studio process to capture product photography in maybe less than ideal conditions in order to get the job done. I went and pulled like the numbers right before this, so I remembered. Nice. But um, yeah, my kind of guy, Don. <laughs> yeah, over that time, we shot around 600 items at like 2.8 million dollars in value in inventory. So holy smokes! Like that would have been shot eventually, but keep in mind, like this was beginning of November, leading into Black Friday, leading into the holiday season. Like yeah. it was more right. like a timing thing was was important. I got to meet Don in New York during the Henry Stewart Photo Studio Operations event. It was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. And now let's jump in. Take a listen. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I am your host, Daniel Jester. And joining me for this episode of the podcast is Senior Manager of Photo Studio, Don Reed uh, for Saks Fifth Avenue. Hi, Don. Hi. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. You have been a listener of the show for a while. You reached out to us sometime last summer after some of our video-centric episodes to ask some questions, which I thought was cool. For the rest of the listeners out there, we ask all the time for you to let us know that you listen. Let's turn this into a community. Don, so far, is the only one. Looking at you, <laughs> the rest of you guys the out there. <laughs> no, that's not true. We have had you know people reach out to us occasionally, but we got together, Don, and we were just kind of like chatting about things to talk about for the podcast, or just kind of like you know some of it was just getting to know each other a little bit. And this is going to be a little bit of a yeah. unusual, not an unusual topic, but an atypical approach to this episode, I guess, because Don and I both have similar experiences with. For me, it's a past employer. Don, I think you were probably with Saks for this story that we're talking about. Uh, but yeah, yeah. basically what we're talking about is like we work in e-com product photography studios for brands. For me, it was when I was with Amazon. For Don, it was with Saks Fifth Avenue. And things come up. There are problems. Uh, in, in my particular case, Amazon really wanted to get into home goods. So the year the year was 2018. <laughs> Just <laughs> only two years ago in my brain still, because my ability to comprehend time stopped in 2020. So in my mind, it's still only two years ago. But for Amazon, they really wanted to get into home furnishings. You know, Joybird by this point had proven that you could have a successful business selling furniture to people online. And the there's a real logistical challenge, especially for a huge company like Amazon, on getting that product when you're a retailer, when you're not Joybird and it's not a brand where that stuff is manufactured for you, when you're a retailer, getting that stuff from the brands, getting that photography done, getting it online. And one of the solutions was to send teams of photographers, stylists, assistants, and Digitex 
to Las Vegas while there was a huge home goods convention. There's one there like every year. There's like basically semi-permanent showrooms for all these brands set up there. And so we went there while the show was happening. We were there to shoot their product specifically because they were all in one place and we could go from booth to booth and shoot their stuff. And we needed to like solve all of the logistical challenges of doing not only a location shoot, but making sure that we were feeding those assets into the proper workflow and they were you know, we were still meeting the same criteria that we were expected to meet in the studio. Don, why don't you share your specific effort that you guys were working on that was similar, but a little bit different? So last year, um, Saks.com saw a pretty significant amount of growth over the year, which meant we were going to have a pretty busy holiday season, busier than we were used to. So part of that in other parts of the company was that they needed more resources to do fulfillment for orders and things like that. So Saks actually partnered with a third-party logistics company called GXO and opened up another like distribution center about like a, a little over an hour away from the studio. And while that was going on, I guess during the startup of it, they had a hard time figuring out how to like outbound products to the studio while keeping the inventory in check. It had something to do with like the internal transfers that wasn't quite sorted out yet. That on top of like, I think they were, you know, short staffed at the time as a lot of places were and probably still are. (laughs) So they were trying to juggle shipping out customer orders, but also getting us new product to shoot to list online to sell. I was just talking to a friend of mine in Sample uh, and she was like filling me in on this and I was like, oh, like... That, like I was thinking, like oh, this is gonna suck. Like once they figure all this out, it's just gonna come hit us like tidal wave of stuff, and then we're gonna be super far behind. But then I was like, you know, I wish we could just like take a set down there since it's only an hour away and just shoot, like shoot the product on site. And knowing it was like a third party logistics and we didn't own the building, I just didn't really like think it was possible. But then I ended up asking leadership if it was, and like the following day, I was connected on a call with our people on the ground at the fulfillment center and pretty much organizing how we were going to set up a remote studio there. And we actually took a lot of what we learned during COVID because we did a shoot from home program during that time in people's houses. So it was basically just like a scaled back version of our typical photography. But yeah, we had like level set meetings with, I believe like the buyers saying like, we weren't going to double back to product that didn't get all of its shots. Like it was like either get it shot under these circumstances and get it ready for the holidays, or you're going to have to wait X amount of weeks until they could get it to the actual studio to shoot. So Hmm. we kind of level set that up front too, which was good. But yeah, so a couple meetings later we got the, okay, we had to get like electric installed at the place because they didn't have any electrical drops where we, where they were going to put us because it was just an empty warehouse. And they got that installed for us like within a week or two, and then we made an equipment list, drove it down in a box truck, and yeah, pretty much set up and got going. It's interesting, you know, part of the reason that we wanted to just like share these stories as a topic on the podcast is because we've talked a lot on this show about institutionalizing some of the things that we've learned throughout COVID. And my story is pre-COVID, but there was a lot of learnings from that Las Vegas shoot that we did that informed the way that Amazon built their studio in LA. And I think that that's a really smart way to go about those things is like, you know, we do this thing this one time to solve a specific need. You know, that's not exactly the way that we advocate to do things always in the studio. And we talk a lot about building processes that are repeatable and using lean 
values and things to improve your process. But sometimes at the end of the day, you still need to load up a box truck with a bunch of equipment (laughs) and go somewhere and get some of that stuff done. Like occasionally, you know, the 80, 20 law, I'm, I'm, that's not what that's called, but you know, if 80% takes place in the studio, 20%, who's to say it doesn't take place at the very North end of the strip in Las Vegas for two weeks during August. Yes, that's true. Listener (laughs) two weeks in Las Vegas in August, which is, 10 days longer than anybody should ever be in Vegas for any reason. I don't care what the reason is. <laughs> we're entering a period right now, and it's it's not really a secret to anybody that like we're going into another period of uncertainty here. There have been every day there have been companies that have been announcing layoffs. We kind of know there's grumblings and rumblings about the economy. We kind of know that something is gonna happen. Those of us that were around for 2008, our fingers are crossed that it doesn't get that bad. But companies are already responding to what they see as potential issues with the economy, unfortunately, in the form of a lot of layoffs, which I will for the listener out there, we will do our best on this show to highlight opportunities, job opportunities, both on LinkedIn and on this show for people who find themselves out of work as a result of what's going on. But we also wanted to share some of these stories because we're going to enter a period where we need to do things pretty lean and, and get kind of crazy to solve these problems because, you know, it turns out the standard for our lives in 2022 is uncertainty. That's just the term. I think that's going to describe the entire yeah, decade sure of is. the twenties. <laughs> I'll mention for my part of it, I was not as involved in the planning phase of the uh, uh, Las Vegas shoot that we participated in, but it basically shaped out like this. We had a producer, great guy, good friend of mine, who came up with this idea and put it all together, and he figured out that they would need basically two photography units. And so one, each unit was made up of a photographer, a digitech, an assistant, and like a stylist. And... There were two of those groups, and then there was a handful of support people, and we all went to Vegas for two weeks. And the first day that we were actually shooting, the show was actually going on. And I can't remember what the name of the show is. It's something... I don't know. It's there's, It has a name. <laughs> but the show is actually going on. And there's one like kind of funny story that I remembered today as I was thinking about this. We had a few minutes to kill before we got settled at each of our first booths. So we were going into like the showroom for some of these companies and and finding a corner and setting up white seamless and shooting these things. But we had some time to kill. And so we were visiting one of the booths. Me and my team, we were just walking through one of the booths looking at some of the furniture. And we all had badges for the show because we were there. We were supposed to be there. So we all had badges that said who we were and what company we worked for. And the guy at this booth came over to us and he saw, he looked at our badge and was like, Amazon. And I said, yeah. And like, what are you doing here? And I said, (laughs) oh, well, we're just, you know, I told him we're here for a specific reason, but we were just killing some time looking through the booth. And he says, maybe you could kill time in another booth. (laughs) And I was like, are you, I'm sorry, are you kicking us out? And then he was like. You feel free to walk through on your way out. You can look at things. And I was, I didn't, I didn't know what, like if this guy had some issue with Amazon or like, you know, I mean, look for a lot of small businesses, there are some feelings about Amazon, but this was one of the first times that I'd ever had an experience like this, where I like literally got kicked out of this guy's booth. And I was like, I'm just here to take pictures, man. Like, I don't, (laughs) you know, like, like, I feel like I'm usually a company guy when I work for a company, but you know, I don't blame you for having some weird feelings about Amazon, but that was, that was pretty crazy. But it was really wild to be like, you know, I remember we were shooting patio furniture 
And I was literally had barely enough room. Like my sweep was coming partially into the walkway. And then I had to move my camera to the other side of the walkway while people are trying to like cut deals and meet with these guys. And I'm like shooting entire huge modular patio furniture sets in this space. And then just would have to like wait to get my next shot because a bunch of people were walking by or they were coming in for a meeting or whatever. It was a really crazy experience shooting that way. It's funny. Like Amazon's a bad word. (laughs) Don, what kinds of things did you learn from just like, not so much the logistics side of it, but from like the tech side of it, like building out this setup and making sure that you were getting the images into the pipeline? I mean, a lot of times it's a matter of like internet connection, but I know we definitely touched on this, that you need to make sure that you've, you know, one thing not a lot of organizations or areas think about is like, we care about upload speed. Anybody Mm -hmm. who works in this business, we care a lot about upload speed. Most people when they sign up for internet do not care at all what upload speed looks like. But tell me a little bit about the digital side. Like, how'd you solve for some of those things? Yeah, so that was definitely a, we had a list of questions right off the bat. Electricity was one, internet was one. And um, in those initial meetings, they kind of ensured us on the ground that all that stuff was there. And surprisingly, internet wasn't the issue at all. But um, we only had enough resources to take two sets with us because we still were operational in our studio space. So we were taking resources away from here and also team members away from here to go shoot down there. So we were kind of conscious of like that juggling act in case things got busier on, on our end here too. So we decided to take like two tabletop sets that were convertible into like slant sets for like pinups. Hmm. It just kind of gave us like the most flexibility. On the technical side, it actually wasn't bad once we got everything set up and like put in place. It was actually, it was really the communication between the fulfillment center and our team getting the product physically back to the space we were shooting because what they would do is they would be sent like a pick list of items that needed to be shot they would pick them and they would bring them back on a pallet and drop them off and then we would kind of go through the bins like my team was actually running like the whole life cycle so we had someone you know opening the packages scanning the tags taking copy points uh steaming like prepping all of that and we had someone shooting running the spreadsheets to make sure we were like checking everything off and then uploading to our image edit team via box and after that then we had to like pack everything back up and then put it in like an outbound area so we kind of had like two pallet areas like an inbound and an outbound and it was cool to see everybody like it was like a a truncated version of an item life cycle that we do in our studio here but with the whole studio team being a lot more hands-on and involved with it and it was really cool to see everybody like band together and like because it started out as like just this like oh here's this like idea maybe we could get ahead of it and do this and then everybody really got into it and I think uh, I tried to keep the team to uh, people that lived closer to that area so cut down on their commute time but throughout the process I think almost everyone on the team ended up going down there to visit at least once because they wanted to see it in action and help out Hmm. so how long did you guys end up staying there to work through this product it was about a month and a half oh wow. it was like beginning of november until like mid-december yeah in general do you have a sense of like what impact that had on like other key metrics that you'd normally see in the studio was like i mean you were kind of were just like jumping the supply chain a little bit to try to get did it result in things getting online a little bit faster right yeah definitely (laughs) i went and pulled like the numbers right before this so i remembered but um, (laughs) i'm my kind of guy don yeah (laughs) over that time we shot around 600 items at like 
$2.8 million in value in inventory. So Holy smokes. Like that would have been shot eventually, but keep in mind, like this was beginning of November leading into Black Friday, leading into the holiday season. Like yeah. it was more right. like a timing thing was Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Once you worked backwards from Black Friday and you realized it couldn't have happened waiting for the logistics side to get their part squared. Because the other thing is like your supply chains are very stressed at this time. At the same time that you're trying to shoot that stuff, so are your suppliers and your logistics teams trying to get that stuff where it needs to be to be ready to support Black Friday. Yeah, I remember we'd walk through there and they had inbound sections that they hadn't even checked in yet. And it was just like mountains of boxes like and i was like how is anybody gonna organize this and get through it but man i'm having like such crazy flashbacks to working in a warehouse-based studio during christmas season and like how for one thing where i was here in southern so oh yeah i guess i was here in southern california for the for amazon when we did the las vegas thing but i was gonna bring this up also because This is sort of the experiment that I was running at my studio for Amazon in Southern California. We were in a distribution center across the street from a fulfillment center. And for anybody who's listening who is unaware of the distinction, every company uses their own terms to define these. But at Amazon, fulfillment was where employees of Amazon picked your order and put it into a box and then it got shipped to you from that fulfillment center. Where I worked, my studio is based in a distribution center. And so we were accepting product from third-party sellers and vendors and, you know, everybody who sent their stuff to be sold on Amazon came to our building and those truckloads of PlayStations or whatever were split up and put on different trucks to go feed the different fulfillment centers. And the idea of our studio was to do exactly what you guys did on that short-term basis, Don, which is to jump one step up in the supply chain. Theoretically, by the time that truckload of PlayStations hit the fulfillment center and were stocked and ready to be sold and then picked, we had already shot it and those images were already online. So the idea was like, get these things shot, get them online. And by the time that truck hits the fulfillment center and we can actually sell it, the images are already there. We don't have things. And this is like one of the core metrics of any e-commerce business is like, you can't have a bunch of products sitting on shelves, taking up valuable real estate in your fulfillment Mm -hmm. center if you cannot sell it because there's no image online, that's egregious waste for an e-commerce business. My particular story was for a different reason though. And this was about the logistics of getting huge pieces of furniture all to a studio where we could shoot it. For one thing, Amazon did not have a studio big enough to accept all of the furniture pieces that we were going to shoot. The only real solution was to go to the vendor and shoot them. And it just so happened that we had this like brilliant, producer who was like, well, wait a minute, there's a huge home goods show where like 60% of the vendors that we want to buy from anyway are all going to be there with the products that we're going to sell. The craziest thing that we shot while we were there that was one of the entire days that we were there, and I'm, I'm going to go on Amazon right now and see if you can still buy it, was a company that sold grandfather clocks. <laughs> and so like there was one, and this company actually makes tons of clocks, not just grandfather clocks. I shot I literally think I shot probably 250 clocks. It's Howard Miller is the name of the, the company. And it looks like some of these look familiar to me that you probably still can go on Amazon today. <laughs> and you can actually buy like a multi-thousand dollar grandfather clock. And I guess they'll ship it to you. I'm not exactly yeah, How does sure that show up this. to your house? <laughs> Thankfully, by this point, the show had concluded. And so we were not competing for space. We, it was just our team in the Howard Miller showroom, which was one of the bigger, they had a permanent showroom in this building and it was one of the bigger rooms. 
And we also had the benefit being on location with them of their staff being there who could help us move these grandfather clocks. These are machines that are like highly tuned and need to be moved very carefully. And so to have their team there to move them on and off set for us was great. The problem that we had was like, for one thing, for the listener, if you're unfamiliar with the grandfather clock in your head, you might be picturing something that's mostly wood, but you also need to remember that large freestanding grandfather clocks have metallic faces, metallic cylindrical counterweights and huge convex pendulums that are basically mirror finish. (laughs) And so you have the worst possible situation of lots of reflective metal that is rounded and reflects everything in the room around you. And every photographer listening to this is like having PTSD sweats because this is like, let alone when it's something small on a tabletop that you can like surround with something. We had it, you know, it was the size of a person. And so we had to build an entire, basically an entire cove that covered three walls in just white paper. Like I did a double sweep that looked like a big boat. And then I did like another double sweep. And then we cut that part off so that we could actually get the clock in there. One of the problems we had though, was moving the clocks when we were on set. It was like, we were ripping up the paper on the ground. Every time we tried to, they were heavy. My assistant couldn't move it on their own. And so I, we had to all like all hands on deck just to shift it. And we said, this can't, we can't do this. There's like 70 of these things that we need to shoot between the two sets. And so we came up with the idea that somebody was going to run out to Harbor Freight and bought furniture dollies and some full sheets of plywood. And we covered the full sheets of plywood with white paper. We made, I think, three of these things and then screwed the plywood to the furniture dollies. And the plan was that these two guys that worked for Howard Miller were going to get the clocks onto these platforms, wheel the whole thing onto set. And the paper covered top of this platform became the floor of the set. And then we could just rotate the entire platform because it was on wheels to get the different shots that we need in the different positions. Smart. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the time it was just like, it seemed really basic. And as I'm saying it now, I'm like, man, we're that's pretty brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but the important thing is, is that ended up informing when they built their home goods studio for Amazon in Vernon here in Southern California, some really smart per actually know who the really smart person was. I think Terrence Mahone, past guest on this podcast, who I just mentioned in the episode we recorded earlier today. He comes up a lot of him and Dua Lipa are my two most mentioned people <laughs> on, this, on this podcast. I did it again. Another Dua Lipa reference. I told myself I wasn't going to do it, but here we are. <laughs> Uh, but I think I, he may have been the one responsible for this. If not, I apologize for giving you credit, Terrence, for something that you didn't do. But somebody said, we're going to take this data point from this photo shoot that they did. And we're going to use that as the business case to say, we need a large heavy duty rotating platform in our studio so that we can easily rotate large pieces of furniture because we can't be like short staffed one day and like putting all this pressure on our creative team to be like picking up a huge sofa. Or one of the things that we had to shoot were like slate top bars, like bar, like freestanding bar units. And those were even heavier than the grandfather clocks. And they ended up doing that. I believe they ended up buying a turntable that was like the one that was designed for cars. So it had a sloped edge that you could drive up and drive the car onto. This is what the kind of the crux of this conversation a little bit is like in those like crazy, like 
you know, for lack of a better analogy, like battlefield problem solving moments, you can come up with an idea that has a lot of value for your studio that you're going to build. And that's what we've been talking about a lot on the podcast is institutionalizing some of these agility moves that we've learned over the course of COVID, over the course of having to work with a reduced staff and all of that kind of stuff that we can just use to make our process better across the board. Yeah. Your response, Don. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's great when you can take the process and just kind of break it down into individual pieces and realize like not everything needs to be done the exact same way every time. Like, yeah, it makes it easier and streamlined when we're in studio and we're all under ideal circumstances, but we can take everything we've learned from the day-to-day work from COVID and everything and put it into practice at something else, you know. <laughs> Usually when we hire people here, one of the things I tell them, because, you know, being totally transparent, it's like, the work we're going to do here isn't the most creative, it's repetitive, it's, you know, that's just is what it is, it's e-commerce, but the creativity lies in like, how we approach each thing, Mm. how we get from point A to point B is really up to us. And that was like a good example of like, taking all of the pieces we already had here and organizing it in a different way that made sense for the moment. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think I've said it before on this show that there's a little bit of equating the creativity part with the decision-making. And that's where people, Mm -hmm. I think, come up with the idea. And it's not exactly wrong. I just think I'm shifting my perspective on it, that like the product photo studio feels less creative because so many of those decisions have been made for you. How the thing gets shot, the angles and all of those, like all the art direction decisions are made and they're set in stone. And that's a part that I feel like that's a part of the process that people assign a lot of the creativity to, but you're exactly right. At the end of the day, you are creating an image from a physical object and still making something that didn't exist before and having to solve for certain problems. And some of those problems are really simple and some of them you need to get really creative in how you solve them. And, you know, I think while I, I'm not going to like no hard feelings to anybody who it's just not for them. I understand that I've worked with photographers who'd like the day in day out product studio is just not for them. I liked it. You know, I enjoyed shooting tabletop product for the hundreds of thousands of products that I've shot in my career. That's not a brag. Like I, I guess I am kind of bragging, but I thought about it one day. I would like did the math and I was like, I think it's like, I think I'm in the six figures. If I could piggyback off that, I come from a video production background. So in school and like my first like five or six years out of school, I did a lot of like video editing and it's just those projects drag on for so long and there's so many changes, so many like minute updates. And when I started here, I actually started on the retouching team and there was something so satisfying about opening a file, doing the thing, and then closing the file, and it's like, and you're done. That's it, and it, yeah. and you could just like crank through stuff. You kind of get in like a good zone, and yeah. I mean, I I just like to level set the creative stuff because we get a lot of um, get a lot of people just out of school, and like you know, I don't, I don't want them to think this is something it's not, but it is a really good place to learn fundamentals. It's like learn how to problem solve essentially like absolutely i've said the same things that i'm sure you've said in team meetings the little pep talk to your photographers and your stylists like look some of these shots may or may not actually end up in your portfolio maybe they will like maybe they absolutely will you could shoot something you could shoot that like sink faucet fixture the best of your entire career and maybe it does end up in your portfolio but 
You're absolutely right. You have tons of time and opportunity to flex those muscles and learn problem solving skills that absolutely will inform whatever the end goal of your career looks like. And the thing for us to do as leaders in the studio is help shape that perspective a little bit, but then give them that understanding that like this may not be you know, the phase of their career that they want to spend a lot of time in, sure. you know, we all as studio managers, we all would love to have that, you know, that handful of full-time or freelance photographers that you can count on for years and years. It doesn't work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> if I could give uh, some, some props to my team that helped with the Middletown shooting. Yeah. It was basically like, I kind of pulled everybody together and said like, here's the objective that we have to do. Here's all the steps I know we need to hit. Like, we need to figure out how to like scan all the product and we have to get a sheet together to like track all the things we have to get at least one steamer down there and enough prep things. And like all of this with like a smaller group of people, it was really great just watching everyone understand the objective without being like told exactly what to do. And I was like, you know, cause I'm like, I don't care how we do this just so it gets from point A to point B and mm. everybody kind of, you know, they were figuring out ways to like organize the products were coming in in bins and they were organizing by product type and like set type. And like, it sounds like common sense, but also like nobody said to do that. Like, so it's just like them kind of taking the objective and creating like a workflow out of it that worked in the moment. And it was really cool to watch them come up with all of that too. Everybody did such a great job. Very cool. And I think that's a great place to end this conversation. Don, thank you so much for your time and yeah. for coming on the show. It was really great. We got a chance to meet in New York at the Henry Stewart event. Saks Fifth Avenue had quite a show of force <laughs> at that event. I and mean, it was really great to meet you and the team and to hear, you know, hear that you guys are fans of the podcast. It meant a lot to me. Sincerely, I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I was, I was starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blushing now. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Don Reed, and thanks to you, the listener, for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm your host, Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends.